0: This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at
1: usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. According to the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation, over 50 million Americans have osteoporosis. Up to one in two women and one in four men will experience a bone fracture due to the disease sometime in their lifetime. Osteoporosis is a common cause of hip, wrist, and vertebral fractures, and these can result in significant complications including chronic pain, disability, and sometimes even death. When detected early, these complications need not occur, and we now have a variety of very effective treatment options for osteoporosis. Some are relatively new. In today's podcast, we'll discuss the treatment options for osteoporosis with Dr. Kurt Kennel, an endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Kurt, thank you for joining me today. It's always a pleasure having you as our guest. I appreciate
0: the opportunity to be here.
1: The Division of Endocrinology at Mayo has now ranked number one for 26 Mm -hmm. consecutive years by the US News and World Report. That's uh, quite an accomplishment. Congratulations.
0: Well, I think we recognize all that goes into that, including our colleagues in other divisions and departments, and not to mention our staff as well. So it's fun to to do well and fun to continue to try to find new ways to serve patients.
1: Yep, I agree. Well, let's talk a little bit about the goal in the treatment of osteoporosis. What are we aiming for? Because it can't just be an increase in bone density, because I remember years ago, we found that fluoride really did a nice job of increasing the bone density but the bone strength wasn't all that great. So what is the goal? I think it's a great question to get us started
0: in the sense that our goal is to prevent fractures that otherwise could be avoided. That's the whole purpose. And as you introduced earlier, it's the downstream effect of those fractures, the chronic pain or the other limitations to life that we want to prevent. That's really what our goal is. Mm -hmm. And other things that we use to understand, diagnose, treat osteoporosis, like, like bone density tests, They help us to understand who might be at risk. They might help us to understand how treatment is progressing in a way that might help to avoid those fractures.
1: But avoiding the fractures is the goal. Well, let's start by talking about calcium and vitamin D. I mean, this is basically uh, something everybody should be taking for prevention, but it's also part of the building blocks for treatment. So let's start with calcium. How much does the average person need?
0: Well, the Institute of Medicine has set a target of Around 1,000 milligrams a day for otherwise healthy adults, and 1,200 milligrams a day for those who are over 70 with osteoporosis. And we think that maybe the average adult might get 5 to 600 milligrams per day, depending on diet, of course. So there is a sense that people can be short of that goal depending on their dietary choices. And if they're short of that goal when it comes to dietary choices, maybe there's a role to enhance their calcium intake to help to prevent and treat osteoporosis. Mm-hmm.
1: And what I have heard is that to limit a supplement to more than 500 milligrams in a dose, right?
0: Correct. It partly has to do with not really a safety issue, but diminishing returns. We don't absorb calcium as well as we get to higher amounts, perhaps more than four or 500 milligrams at a single time. And the same idea could be taken forward if if I happen to have a high dietary calcium intake, say at my breakfast, if I'm having yogurt and things, might not be the ideal time to take a calcium supplement. And if I have a lower calcium intake, for example, in my evening meal, that might be a preferable time to, again, get the most out of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And let's go to vitamin D. How much of that do we need?
0: How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) It continues to be a fascinating vitamin. And I, I want to acknowledge that outside of the world of bone health, there continues to be a lot of interest in vitamin D for other health goals that could be more interesting to people than their bone health. I think from a bone health point of view, we're kind of relaxing our expectations of vitamin D a little bit. We know that calcium absorption is improved with vitamin D, so it is important, but it doesn't take that much 20 to 25 micrograms, which is 800 to 1000 units for most people will provide enough from a bone health point of view to be sufficient. So higher amounts than that are sometimes proposed for a variety of reasons, including again, non-bone reasons, but from a bone point of view, that's really all we need.
1: Okay. One quick question. This came up this week, in fact, in a patient that I had who has some osteopenia. Can calcium and vitamin D be taken in supplements in those who have a history of calcium-containing kidney stones?
0: The answer would generally be yes, once again, not to overlook what the diet might already be providing in mm-hmm. terms of calcium, especially. Uh, if I already have a calcium-rich diet, the additional calcium from supplementation might actually increase my risk for kidney stones. But if I do not have a, a high calcium diet, and if my kidney stones might actually reflect something of an oxalate problem, calcium oxalate kidney stones, then adequate dietary and supplemental calcium is actually an advantage to prevent kidney stones. So there is this middle ground that provided we're attentive to not overdoing it with supplements Mm -hmm. and keeping in mind what the diet is. No, calcium intake is generally a positive thing in persons who have a kidney stone history.
1: Okay, good to know. Okay, let's talk about prescription therapy. We'll divide this up into those that slow the bone reabsorption, and those that increase the bone development so let's start with the uh, bisphosphonates these seem to be first line therapy how do they work
0: yeah and i would agree with you they continue to be first in our list of considerations partly because of their track record the first oral bisphosphonate alendronate came out in 1996 so we certainly have the benefit of having a lot of experience with the bisphosphonates and for those people who are seeking to prevent their bone density from getting worse, to reduce the risk of breaking bones. That's why we tend to start with them first. They are, as you stated, suppressing the bone breakdown process, which sounds favorable since that is out of balance with aging. In turn, they do suppress the bone building process at the same time, which might at first glance not seem desirable. But if we use them in the correct fashion, the right dose for the right duration, we think we have that balance struck between too much versus, you know, too little medication to reduce the risk of fractures. So in the case of the oral therapies, that tends to be five years of therapy followed by a time away, we call it a drug holiday. And for the IV therapies, it tends to be three years followed by a time away. And if we follow that time away or that holiday, we we feel we have it about right in terms of that issue of how much we're suppressing the bone resorption in a way that's actually
1: healthy for the bones. And what's the uh, purpose of the drug holiday?
0: Well, at the very least, it's not always clear that taking more than five years of the oral therapies really adds to the situation in terms of preventing fractures. It's it's probably, again, not much more used to do that, but there may be some safety questions. If we use longer-term treatment in the bone resorption, the bone breakdown is becoming too suppressed for too long. Perhaps we see an element of bone brittleness. It's pretty rare. It's quite rare. I, I, I really want to make that point that it's not something to fear. But if there's lack of benefit from taking it for more than five years and maybe a little bit of risk, why do that? Mm-hmm. So typically the holiday after five years of an oral is both because it's not necessary to take longer and maybe safer to take a break.
1: Okay. One adverse effect that was, I think, discovered, uh, I don't know, it's probably been a decade now, maybe not that long, is the uh, osteonecrosis of the jaw. Is mm-hmm. that overblown? Is, how common is that?
0: I don't think it's overblown in the sense that we you know again we're looking to provide patients with benefit on reducing that risk of fracture but nobody wants a side effect nobody wants a a concern in their mind even just the thought of it so we would emphasize that the risk of that happening does depend upon one's oral health for example if one has excellent oral health and you know does not have gum disease does not have other conspicuous reasons why they might be at risk for requiring teeth to be extracted the risk of having these medications contribute to poor healing of the jaw when a tooth is pulled. Could be one in two thousand, one in four thousand. I would consider that a pretty low number. Mm-hmm. Versus a person who has poor oral health, for example, may require other medications that affect healing, like steroids, prednisone, things of this nature. Have have a history of having tooth problems and tooth extractions. That risk could be as high as you know one in a thousand, or or, or even higher. So, uh, we try to collaborate with the patient and their oral health provider to understand, you know, what's at stake in terms of risk of breaking bones versus risk of having poor healing of the jaw. And in all situations, good oral health, good oral hygiene is critical because that's probably our best strategy to avoid the issue altogether.
1: So how about zoledronic so acid? I think most probably recognize this more as a brand name reclast. Mm-hmm. How does it work and what are its advantages or disadvantages? So
0: in terms of the mechanism of how it works, we would consider it the same as the the pills, but just a different way to deliver it to the bones, avoiding the stomach, which for some people, the pills can be troublesome, causing stomach upset and heartburn. So the IV avoids that. Advantages could include the fact that when we do give it by vein, we can give it as infrequently as once a year or even every other year, depending on the situation. So for those people who have a lot of difficulty with pills, swallowing pills, you know stomach issues to begin with perhaps maybe they've had a a stomach surgery that affects how well they can tolerate or absorb pills we would favor the iv the iv again might be favored by providers quite frankly because we don't have to be as concerned as it getting missed or forgotten you know or discontinued by accident which can happen with pills as we all know we've all been there right
1: yep so yep. in
0: that regard we might favor the iv medication in people who have just very complicated situations with a lot of health issues and medicines to juggle, in which case the IV can be more confidently given and not worried about it being disrupted or
1: discontinued. And I was reading an article on the medical adherence to the bisphosphonates, and it's notoriously low. It's something like 80% stop these drugs within the first couple of years for a variety of reasons. So I, I can see how an injectable form might be an advantage. Indeed. So how about denosumab, or more commonly known as Prolia? When would you choose that drug?
0: Yeah, so Prolia is still in this family of medicines that suppresses the bone breakdown process. It works differently than the bisphosphates, but again, on the same side of that equation of suppressing the bone breakdown process. It is definitely a stronger medicine than the bisphosphonates. It's more potent. It will suppress the bone breakdown further, which will more quickly and more robustly improve the bone strength. So in situations where people have more severe osteoporosis, it might be favored, for example. Like that infusion therapy strategy, since proleas injection every six months can be very appealing for people who have a lot of other medicines to juggle. And so having that shot every six months can be much less of a burden for them. So we might consider that as well. It's clearly an advantage in people who have kidney health concerns. Especially those who have more advanced kidney disease, where it is very safe as opposed to the bisphosphates, which can be harmful for the kidneys. So, I would say the person who has more severe osteoporosis, maybe with concerns regarding kidney health, maybe has tried the bisphosphate medications and has not been able to tolerate them well, Proli is a very effective therapy in that regard.
1: Okay. So, those are the anti resorptive drugs. Let's talk about the anabolic agents. I think these are probably some of the more newer products Mm. out there. So, Mm Tell us what's available there and when we should consider using them.
0: This is, a, again, a, I think some change that's occurring in the in the treatment strategy that we have for osteoporosis, and these are medicines that might not be as familiar to persons because of this. As you introduce, the idea here is, well, what about stimulating the bone building cells to work faster, and what about trying to build up the bone strength more than maybe a drug that suppresses the bone breakdown can do? And there are reasons to believe, studies, to believe that that is a more effective strategy, both in terms of you know more likely to reduce the risk of fractures down the road, which again is our goal, and especially in people who might have more severe osteoporosis. The challenge with these medicines is that they might be more rigorous for persons to use. Two of our three medicines, teriparatide, which is known as Forteo, and abaloparatide, which is known as Timlos, these are daily injections taken under the skin uh, at bedtime for two years. And so it might be that the benefit in terms of a more aggressive strategy and and more effective might be outweighed by the extra effort involved, not to mention they can be more expensive. Mm -hmm. So we certainly consider these and introduce these and it might be in a situation where we're having multiple fractures, bone density is very low, and we would say these are likely to be more effective, but we recognize that for some persons, the extra effort involved might feel overwhelming to them. The newer one that might be aware to, to listeners is called romozozumab, which is marketed as Evenity, and it's a whole different drug altogether, not related to the others. It is quite sophisticated. This is an antibody we inject under the skin monthly for a year that stimulates the, both the bone-building cells to work faster. So it's an anabolic drug, but also suppresses the bone breakdown process. It does both. So in a sense, it's the ultimate most rapid most potent most effective therapy we have and maybe our only reservation regarding it is that it's new we only have a couple of years of real world experience all of the bone building medicines importantly all of these therapies i just mentioned are taken for one to two years thereafter when we stop them the bone density the bone strength wants to regress back to the baseline so all the bone-building medicines we use still will require a next step of using a medicine to suppress the bone breakdown process, whether that be denosumab, known as prolia or a bisphosphonate, all of them require that. Otherwise, there is no use to using a bone-building medication.
1: Well, you may be accomplishing this with Avenity, but do you ever give an anti-resorptive drug with an anabolic agent in those that have rather severe osteoporosis? I've not seen that, but maybe. <laughs>
0: It's quite unusual. It's quite unusual. When that when that tends to happen in our practice, I would say is someone who's using an anti-resorptive drug, still having fractures, and we might consider adding an anabolic therapy on top of the anti-resorptive. But that's not usually our initial plan. That's usually a plan when things are really going poorly, and those are usually in very special circumstances. Okay,
1: so go over again the timing of how to use these. Uh, so mm. you start with an anabolic agent. And that's limited time. And then you switch to a anti-resorptive medication. Is that the general idea?
0: That's the general idea. And again, this the sequence is important. We feel like we can have the best results when we use the medicines in the best sequence and the best duration and with timely transitions. And just from a 30,000 foot point of view, this is kind of different than medicines we might use for hypertension, high blood pressure. Medicines we might use for high cholesterol, where we can go between different medicines pretty freely without having to think too much about what happened before and what happens now. With bone medicines, the choices that we make initially can affect our results later with other medicines. So we do like to think ahead and we like to think in terms of what is the right sequence. So typically, if we were in a patient with more severe osteoporosis, by which I mean maybe already having multiple fractures, we might consider one to two years of an anabolic bone building drug, followed by three to five years of a anti-resorptive drug. Uh, With a person with less severe osteoporosis, we might consider three to five years of the anti-resorptive drug followed by some sort of drug holiday. Or in the case of prolia, five to 10 years is a typical treatment period. And then we need to bridge them off of or de-escalate their prolia therapy with perhaps one to two years of a bisphosphonate. So thinking ahead about that, timeline and that transition and having that plan is is important because if we do that incorrectly we don't have the same results
1: well kurt you know you got job security because things were so much easier when all we had was the (laughs) bisphosphonates so it's much much (laughs) more complicated now my goodness so your whole world is uh bone health is anything out there in the future that really excites you for potential
0: There's a lot of interesting ideas that I think are exciting. We know that part of our goal in terms of maintaining bone health is how we use the skeleton to begin with. How do we exercise, nutrition, you know, in ways that we can try to maintain our skeleton, just like we try to maintain our muscles with healthy aging, for example there are some interesting ideas about using a mechanical vibration or magnetic or electrical stimulation to try to give the bones an extra signal to say hey we need you to maintain yourselves you know non drug strategies if you will there's some interest in being able to treat where the problem is at its greatest so when i give a medicine now it goes to the entire skeleton mm-hmm. but there's some interesting ideas about how we could maybe inject into the bone, for example, at the hip, you know, some mineral components and 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 chemicals that would cause the bone at the hip to get stronger but just right where we need it as opposed to throughout the entire skeleton and and these sorts of things are in clinical trials. So I think those kinds of ideas where we're we're trying to become more targeted, you know and and maybe even leverage some of the healthy biology of our bodies to say how can we, work with aging that you know has its changes, but maybe do it in a way that doesn't have as many uh, potential side effects or overlaps with other health conditions.
1: Well, certainly the world of treatment of osteoporosis has changed dramatically over the past decade. Mm-hmm. Can you give us maybe two or three key points that kind of summarize our discussion on uh, management of osteoporosis?
0: I might add that, you know, I, I do think that when people recognize uh, osteoporosis is all about fractures and not just about bone density, we don't want to forget about the, again, fall prevention. We don't want to forget about lifting technique. And I don't have a drug to make a person stronger. I don't have that, requires nutrition, exercise, functional fitness, right? And so, over-relying upon the medications to improve the bone strength, but not paying enough attention to what we're doing for our physical function, our muscle health, our balance would be missing the mark when it comes to the ultimate goal of preventing fractures. I would say that a key thing is to take a long-term view when we think about osteoporosis and its management, meaning thinking ahead about maybe a 10 or 20-year journey of treatment and understanding how that would play out in terms of my initial choices, keeping in mind that Fractures are the goal to avoid fractures. And if we're having fractures, it suggests that maybe we need to revisit the treatment. And I think last but not least, and in, in you alluded to this, Daryl, it's the idea that w- we have to always think about side effects and potential negatives of treatment of anything we do in medicine. I don't want to underestimate people's concerns about them, but we also have to keep them in light of the balance of what we're trying to accomplish. So the example of medication-related ostracosis of the jaw, if we can lower the risk of fracture from one in eight to one in four, that's probably worth a one in 2,000 chance of medication related osteoporosis in jaw. So with your providers, you know, conversation and and your thinking just to keep an open mind about those balances between benefits because we do think it's valuable to prevent fractures and the risks that sometimes are of concern to patients.
1: We've been discussing the treatment options for osteoporosis with Dr. Kurt Kennel from the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism at the Mayo Clinic. Kurt, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It's always great to have you as a guest. Thank you, I appreciate the invitation. You can now listen to over several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us We're honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week. Stay well.